Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today we are going to talk about ghost towns from our respective areas. But first, Montana, what is on the drink menu today? Well, we are drinking, or I'm drinking because Samantha actually can't get it, and it was very hard for me to get it. Uh, Sir Walter Raleigh um wine this is a it'll go along with my story and you'll understand why i chose this during that story but uh it's a really good wine um originally my husband and i we lived in raleigh for a few years and we had that wine up there and then we spent the past like five years after we moved to charlotte looking for it and could not find it. And then he found it in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, North Carolina, and brought home two bottles. So he's nice. going to be mad when he finds out I opened one of them. So <laughs> cheers. Cheers. <laughs> and for those of you who can't get it, feel free to uh, get your own just regular wine. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a sweet red. Um, I'll list I'll list I'll put a picture of the bottle online for you guys (laughs) so you can see exactly what it is i don't have the bottle here with me because i didn't think that far ahead um welcome to my world (laughs) so before we only somewhat prepared yeah i'm a little bit prepared i can't ever be fully prepared um before we get started i do want to bring up sam did you see uh adnan syad i did release today i saw that it was yesterday yeah, it was yesterday. Yeah. And for you listeners, we're recording on Tuesday. Um, sometimes our days bounce back and forth. And also, uh, this episode might not come out this week. We don't know. Because we haven't figured it out. <laughs> we're, we're sitting we're on like all six over the episodes place. right now. <laughs> We've already recorded. We don't know what we're going to release. And so but... it might be confusing at the beginning of some of these because we're not used to doing them out of order because we've been recording them the Tuesday before we released them on Friday. But we were like, especially since Montana's been sick, I've been sick, I had a procedure done, like, this is hard shit. <laughs> so <laughs> we, wanted to, <laughs> we wanted to record some extra ones. So if we needed a break, mental break, we were sick, we could do that because we haven't been able to yet. So this is new for us. So some of this might not make sense whenever yeah. it's released in the right order. <laughs> so we'll also, see. We're trying to save up for spooky explosion in October, and I hate I call it a spooky explosion because it sounds sexual. Yeah, I, I wasn't gonna say anything. it was gross. <laughs> but be prepared for our spooky explosion in October. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanna I just wanna like give a brief like overview of like or just a brief update on the Adnan Syed um situation i know probably most of the listeners know about adnan syad and uh Heyman lee and what happened there but um samantha is not actually familiar with the case um so adnan syad was convicted of Heyman lee his girlfriend at the time or his previous girlfriend and uh, a very good podcast um Serial was created. It was uh, pretty much kind of like an investigative journalist where she was like talking to the people who were involved in this. It was an excellent podcast. Like I've re-listened to it three times. Um, But pretty much it seemed like because Adnan is a minority uh, and he's a Muslim and things like that. And it felt like it was very, um, what's the word I want to use? They were gunning for him. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they didn't look at okay. other like suspects and things like that very well. And there's a lot of stuff that went around, around that, but he's been in prison for over 20 years. And, um, after serial came out in 2014, a lot of people questioned his conviction 
because it brought to light a lot of the things that were done wrong in this case and a lot of like advancements in technology and like DNA testing and stuff like that. But pretty much here's what happened. Um, Cause I was like, how have we spent so many years? Like people have been like pushing for them to test DNA and things like that. How was his conviction? It wasn't overturned. What was it? It was vacated. So he's not, he's not cleared. But his conviction was vacated. Okay. So he could still, they, the prosecution still has 30 days to press charges against him if they want to. But again. again, but as of right now, he is at home under supervised detention or whatever. So here's what happened. There was a newer prosecutor that was on the scene and uh, there was a new law that was actually passed that said minors who were convicted of Uh, murder charges or whatever um, and they have spent more than 20 years in prison would have the option to go in and you know combat their whatever they had the option to be able to be released because a minor who was convicted has been in there for over 20 years I mean it seems a little bit aggressive and he was 17 at the time so his lawyer filed the uh, petition for this to happen with him and the new prosec- prosecutor that was on, you know, on the scene, as you would put it, uh, said, okay, well, one of those things that I have to do is look at how culpable was he in this case. So she started pulling evidence files and she came across evidence make a long story short, she came across evidence that was not given over to the defense. So we have a, um, it was uh, a Brady violation. Um, when, and a Brady violation is basically when the prosecute, this is real early for that. When the prosecution doesn't turn over evidence to the defense um, that could potentially, I mean, any evidence, but this evidence specifically could have brought question into the conviction for Adnan Syed. Uh, and that evidence was um, notes taken from a um, from somebody who was basically basically it came out that there were two other suspects in the case, and they were never okay. looked into. And so, well, see, that's something the defense could use to cast out uh, reasonable doubt mm-hmm. on the case. So, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's a big no no. And there was a lot of other things that were behind it. Like they use, they heavily used like cell phone um, pinging tower evidence in his case originally. And now we know that that evidence is horseshit anyway. Um, so there was a lot around it, but the Brady violation is almost immediately like a vacation of any sentence because that's a violation against the prosecution. And honestly, I feel like prosecutors should be charged when they do things like this because they're actually breaking the law. But far be it for me. Anyways, I think it's a big win, but it also points light on um, the uh, judicial system and the way that they treat certain people and the way that they have... When somebody gets something in their head, i.e., go back to the last three-parter that I did where each person had their own idea of who did it and they could not get off that topic. Um, well, and that's why um, any kind of job where there's something wrong or like when you worked with me, I would always say second set of eyes. By all means, check your work and make sure that you don't recognize what happened. But if you can't see why it's wrong, Get somebody else to look at it because they're looking at it with a fresh set of eyes that are not biased towards what you were seeing. And that's in anything. Yeah, for sure. But I'm excited that he's out. Um, I'm not going to say whether or not I think he did it. Actually, no, I am going to say whether or not I think he did it. I don't think he did it. Or I don't think the evidence that they have will ever prove that he did it. If that's better. Okay. Uh, I think they had a lot of other people who had higher motivations to kill Heyman Lee 
So I don't know what motivation could ever have you to kill somebody, but <clears throat> far be it for me to question crazy people. Anyway. That's all we talk about pretty much. <laughs> I know. Uh, but if you if you have the time, go and listen to season one of Serial. It is on the Adnan Syed case. Such a great, great podcast. I think it was like the one of the first like uh, true crime podcasts that really got things moving in the true crime podcast world. So she did a great job. That's me telling you, Samantha, to go listen to it. I know. I caught that. Anyway. So I'm first. I'm first this time. Yeah, this this is a did we say it's a joint one? Oh yeah, no, I didn't. Whoops. Yeah, oops. So this is this, gonna be another joint one. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do a joint one. So yay. Uh we're gonna shake it up a little bit. You can't see that. I just did finger guns. <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh my god. My life is. You're gonna have to get this under control before we start recording the, the video with the audio. Uh, I can't stop. I won't stop. <laughs> anyway. I knew that was coming. <clears throat> so today I'm going to tell Samantha about the lost colony of Roanoke. Now, if you guys stuck it out for the full three-parter episode that I just did, the play in that case was called The Lost Colony, and it's actually based on The Lost Colony of Roanoke. Um, before I get started, I want to list my resources, um, an article in history.com, which history.com got it going on. I found something new. Like they have a lot of stuff. I'm here for it. Um, obviously Wikipedia, multiple Wikipedia articles on like different people from that time. And then, um, a news.rnet.com article. Um, and I'll, you know, obviously listed in the show notes, but anyways, are you ready? I think so. Uh, I do know the general idea of this story, but I've not heard the details. So I'm very interested. Well, buckle up, Buckaroo. You're in for a wild ride. I've heard this before. Where have I heard this before? Oh yeah. And your three-parter. Oh, it's me. It's always <laughs> me. I'm a broken fucking record. Anyways, so picture it. August 1587. It's not Sicily. Okay. You don't get that joke. No. Did you ever watch Golden Girls? No. Oh, damn. Well, for everybody else out there who has watched Golden Girls, I'm looking at you. All right, so picture <laughs> it. August 1587. 115 smelly English settlers arrived on Roanoke Island. This was their second attempt at settlement on Roanoke. Two years previous, they had tried and failed to settle on the island. The colonists intended to form the first permanent English outpost in the New World. Among these colonists was the one and only John White. John White was an English colonist, colonial governor, explorer, artist, and cardiographer. Do you know what a cardiographer is? No. They're like map makers. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Well, I mean, like it lit. This guy was quite talented, I guess. Yeah. Well, artists lends itself into map making. Like, hey. I thought that was pretty cool. Because <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole into like the history of cardio. It doesn't matter. i a super nerd. Whatever. He was also among the first colonists in 1585 when they attempted to settle the settle it previously. During that trip, he served as an artist and a map maker to the expedition. During the second attempt at settlement, John White became governor of the colony. During this time, he made several watercolor sketches of the surrounding landscape and the native Algonquin people. And I just, I, I just baseline, I'm going to apologize because there's a lot of like native tribe names in here. And I'm going to, I'm probably going to butcher them. Sorry. It's, it's hard. At least you're, uh, what's the word now? I can't think of it. Um, at least you're giving us warning 
and yeah, you're just, apologizing just, ahead of time. I'm apologizing now. I'm going to apologize after. It is what it is. So. When the second round of colonists arrived on the island, they set out repairing the structures left behind in the previous attempt. They also searched for 15 men left behind by the expedition, but they only found bones. Yikes. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is this is only a few years, right? Yeah. So it was uh it was only 2 years okay. between the two expeditions. Some Something was hungry. Uh, something happened. There were some tensions with the local Algonquins, uh, Algonquin Indians, though initially things went well. John White quickly made contact with friendly natives led by Chief Mantillo, who explained to him that the lost 15 had been killed by hostile, and here we go, Sikotan Ag- Aquascogog and Dasamangupong warriors. I nailed it. (laughs) I swear to God, I did like get, I went to like Google and like had them read it out, but even Google was having a hard time with it. So Google's not always right. No, it's not. So I am sorry. Um, Anyway, the thought was there. You tried. I tried. I'm doing my best. If you remember from our three-parter that I just released. Yeah, I was like, hey, Mantillo. Yeah. Chief Mantillo was actually the Native American who was taken back to England. Mm -hmm. And civilized. And civilized. Barf. And this was after the first settlement. Uh, failed so like the first settlement tried he actually ended up going back with them and then came back when they were coming back anyway on august 8th 1587 john white led a dawn attack on the desamangu ponques nailed it again that went disastrously wrong what they previously thought to be the Dasamangu Ponques village was actually a group of friendly natives. They killed one and wounded many. In his journal, John White wrote, We were deceived, for the savages were our friends. Okay, sir, please don't call maybe them don't savages. Walk, well, maybe don't walk in guns blazing. Yeah, and also don't call your friends savages. Like, no, don't call okay. anyone savages. Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Whatever. After the attack, relationships with the local tribes steadily deteriorated. A I wonder weeks- why. <laughs> Not a clue imagine. why that would happen. Oh my crazy. I'm so confused. <laughs> We're trying so hard. But, in better news, a few weeks after this attack, John White welcomed his granddaughter into the world. She was named Virginia Dare. She was the first. That's a cool name. It is. She's actually like a prominent person in the Lost Colony like play production. Okay. And so like little kids who grow up around there, they, I have got to get my head out of this. (laughs) 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 I'm so done with it. You've been here forever, which now I know why you wanted to record this. So again, we're recording out of order. We're recording this right after the three parters. So now I see why you're wanting to do this winning it knocked out so you can move to a different place yeah i crazily went to research another town like another ghost town last night because i was like i just can't deal with this anymore (laughs) and then i was like no i'm gonna go ahead and do it because if i don't do it i'm gonna end up like the um oh yeah yeah. and just never want to come back to it so and i'm believing that because we might record what i just said at a later date and I don't want people to be mad that I, you know, deleted that two-parter. Whatever. Anyway, uh, she was the first child, um, first child English. Why did I write it like that? Oh my god, she was the first English child born in the new English colony. Wow. So, so yeah. 
Cool, right? Yeah. What a title. That's what I was thinking. What a title. By uh, the late 1587, the colonists' food supply had begun to dwindle. Settlers pressed John White to return to England for supplies and necessities. By late 1587, the colonists' food supply had begun to dwindle. Settlers pressed John White to return to England for supplies and necessities. You see, the original plan was for the settlers to land in Chesapeake area instead of Roanoke. But during their journey back over their navigator for the trip, Simon Fernandez allowed the colonists to disembark on Roanoke. And I'm assuming he did it because they asked because they were looking for those other 15 settlers or whatever. Mm, Okay. So the first one was supposed to be in Roanoke? Yes. First one was in Roanoke, but then they decided to go to Chesapeake instead on the second one. But when he let them leave the ship, he refused to let them reboard after. This, I don't know why it didn't give an explanation. Uh, Apparently his fellow like um, sailors had given him a mean nickname or something like that. So I think he felt some like type of way about it. I don't know. Yeah. Fine. If you're going to be that way, you can't get back on the ship. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why he didn't, but that just seemed petty. So I didn't want to actually put it in my notes, but yeah. So this meant that the supply ships that were headed to Chesapeake were not aware of where the colonists actually went and they would be left without supplies that they needed to get through the winter. That's some serious, that's petty, like level thousand. Yeah, for sure. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to kill y'all for giving me a name. It's also like interesting because like the first, their first attempt at settlement here uh, John White actually became decent friends with the local tribes and they were not like the colonists were not ready for the winter. Like they had gotten there before they could do planting and stuff like that and get ready for the winter. So the tribes actually helped the colonists out the first winter that they were there on that first trip. But they had just fucked up because they had just Went in guns a blazing, killing some of their friendly tribesmen that were around them. I mean, they're screwed no matter which direction you're looking at it. Yeah, I mean, so. they basically they basically ruined any kind of backup plan they might have had. Yeah, pretty much. Oops. So apparently, our boy John White didn't want to leave and head to England. Do you want to know why? Do I want to know why? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Go for it. He was afraid someone would steal his toys. I mean, his belongings. <laughs> what are they going to do with it? They're not going to go anywhere. They're still going to be there when you get back. And then I wrote, what a child. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was hangry. Eventually, after a colonist agreed to stand guard over his belongings, he <laughs> sailed out for the supplies that they needed. All right, I'll go, but you have to promise to not steal my stuff. <laughs> right? Like, what? what difference did that make? <laughs> Bro, just take your shit with uh, you. Like, what is wrong with you? Ugh. I mean, my thing is, it's not going to go anywhere. Where are they going to hide it if they steal it while you're gone? Like, really? Also, what are they going to do with it? What are you afraid is being stolen? What do you have that you care that much about? Right. I don't know. How many questions? Childish. Um, Misfortune struck White's return to England from the beginning. And I just gotta say, like, the rest, (laughs) his journey to and from England after this reads like the fucking Odyssey. (laughs) Honestly, if you read like the full details, I'm like, God damn. (laughs) This is incredible. I can't believe Time time on boats wasn't a whole lot of fun way back when. True. So, mis- misfortune struck White's return to England from the beginning. The anchor of the flyboat on which White was qu- 
quartered could not be raised, and many crew members were severely injured during the attempt. Worse, their journey home was delayed by scarce and variable winds, followed by a storm at the northeast, and many sailors starved or died of scurvy. On October 16th, 1587, the desperate crew at last landed in... Smurwick? No. In the, <laughs> nailed it. In the west of Ireland. And White was finally able to make his way back to Southampton. Once back in England, Old White... Where did I put that in there? Old White couldn't seem to catch a break. Two weeks previously, Queen Elizabeth I had issued a general stay of shipping, preventing him from returning to the colony. This was because the King of Spain had joined forces with the Pope at the time and was attempting to invade England, a la Spanish Armada. Oh. Yeah. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It's pretty interesting. I spent way too much time reading up on that. (laughs) And I'm not including it in this because you dum-dums need to go look at it. (laughs) Good excuse for you to look up history.com. Yeah, history.com is... Uh, fantastic sir walter raleigh attempted to provide ships to rescue the colony but he was overruled by the queen cheers sir walter raleigh (laughs) also the colony that they established in roanoke was um called walter was named after walter raleigh okay i forgot to put that in the beginning but he's our unsung hero who also had the capital of North Carolina named after him, but whatever. There's that. <laughs> and he has a fantastic wine. Yeah, it was obviously <laughs> That was my main that was my main thing. <laughs> the but the wine. Ugh. Yeah. However, by early fifteen eighty eight, John White was able to get a couple of boats together, even though they kind of sucked butt. And speaking of buds, during the voyage back to the colony, his ships were intercepted by French pirates, and our boy John was shot in the booty. I was wondering what direction this was going to go, but <laughs> you I, that never def- know, I, it's me. I definitely didn't know. That <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, you never know. He was apparently really embarrassed by it, but also all I can see is Deadpool when he gets shot. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, right up Main Street. <laughs> um, they were able to escape the pirates and fled back to England after all their shit was stolen. Just phenomenal writing. Has anybody thought about the fact that this stuff follows him and maybe it's his fault and they should just get rid of him? Oh, it's not. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My man's cursed. I mean, he's got some really bad luck. In March 1590, the Spanish invasion had abated. Raleigh was able to equip White's rescue expedition. Their journey back took a good amount of time since they kept encountering pirates and apparently some sea battles. An odyssey. I'm telling you. All right. Finally, Governor White reached Roanoke Island on August 18th, 1590, his granddaughter's third birthday. How fucking cute. I guess. Okay. (laughs) Did they even celebrate birthdays? I don't know. I'm not sure what's going on here. Well, you want to know what wasn't cute? Was the the fact that the colony was abandoned. (laughs) There was nobody there. Well, I bet that wasn't the welcome he was hoping to get. No. Well, it's kind of, it's messed up too, because like, as he, as he was approaching, I didn't put it in my notes, but as he was approaching Roanoke Island, there was a very bad storm. I'm assuming it was probably like a hurricane or something like that, that was fucking him up. But he went in anyway with several other men and several other men died, but he made it onto the island. Like it was just, it 
it was an odyssey. I'm telling you, you got to read up on all this stuff. I don't have the time to go into great detail on this podcast. And if I did, I would bore you to tears. When he showed up and he looked around, buildings had collapsed and the houses were taken down. In a tree, the letters C-R-O were carved into the trunk. And the word Croatoan was carved in a post of the fort. Croatoan was the name of a nearby island and of a local tribe of Native Americans. Roanoke Island was originally not a planned location for the colony, and the idea of moving elsewhere had been discussed. Before the governor's departure, he and the colonists had agreed that a message would be carved into a tree if they had moved and would include an image of a Maltese cross if the decision was made by force. John White found no such cross and was hopeful that his family were still alive somewhere else. So apparently his stuff had been well looked after, by the way. I'm, I'm sure you were on the edge of your seat about that. I was really worried about it. I've been thinking about it the whole time. The colonists had buried and hidden it. However, local uh, Native Americans had looted the hiding place. Oh, no. So most of his shit was just fucked up anyway. <laughs> Maybe if he hadn't hidden it, it would have been fine. Maybe if he hadn't been a petty little bitch. Um, because of bad weather, White had to peace out. <laughs> <laughs> You said that's so serious. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Stop looking at me. Stop laughing. Uh, Nobody's ever going to listen to this podcast. Because of bad weather, White had to peace out back to Plymouth, England on October 24th, 1590. Unable to search the surrounding islands for his family. The fate of approximately 112 to 121 colonists remains unknown. Speculation that they had assimilated with nearby Native American communities appears in writings as early as 1605. Investigations by the Jamestown colonists produced reports that the Roanoke settlers had been massacred and stories of people with European features in Native American villages, but no hard evidence was produced. Which also, it was like 1605, and the uh, European settlers had, uh, you know, huge racist opinions of Native Americans, so... Obviously. Say say whatever they say with a grain of salt. So, yeah, nobody really knows what happens to them. But fear not, listeners and Samantha. (laughs) I did not stop there in my research. Nay, nay. I did not. An article published by Sarah Cascone, Cascone in November 2020 may hold the clues we've been searching for for over 400 years. Of lengthy order. <laughs> yeah, I know. 400 years. All right, sure. Yeah. Uh, wait, it is 400 years. No, I meant you You figured it out after 400 years. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, completely. Uh, anyways, I've linked the article in the show notes, but uh, it's, it is titled, Archaeologists May Have Finally Solved the Mystery of the Disappearance of Roanoke's Lost Colony. So I had to include it. You're welcome to go and read the full article yourself because I'm just going to hit the highlights here. In 2012, researchers discovered a new lead in the mysterious lost colony while examining a map at the British Museum in London that John White had painted of the United States. Hidden in invisible ink were the outlines of two fords, one 50 miles west of Roanoke, the same distance the colonists said they planned to move to. The ink was presumably uh, hidden to guard from the Spanish invasion back then. Okay, that makes sense. 
also whenever I was researching that and just when I said it all I could think was um Nicolas Cage Nicolas Cage Nicolas Cage that's just me in 2015, a team of archaeologists booked it to the Birdie County, North Carolina. Promisingly, the possible settlement was close to a Native American village called Metaquam. Yeah, Metaquam. Okay, yeah, I think I got it. Typical of early European uh, settlements. So archaeologists did what archaeologists do, and they discovered pottery that was from different parts of Europe. I'm not sure if archaeologists discover pottery or if they do other things. I was going to um, let it go. I just, I wrote that. Um, well, obviously they do. But these did. So there you go. What has been found so far at a site Y in Birdie County, there's two different sites, by the way. There's site Y and site X. I'm not going to go over site both sites. I'm simply giving a quote right now from this article what has been found so far at site y in birdie county appears to me to solve one of the greatest mysteries in early american history the odyssey of the lost colony william n kelso emeritus director of archaeology and research at jamestown rediscovery said in a statement but not everyone is buying this explanation for the colony's ultimate fate I am skeptical, says Charles Ewen, an archaeologist at Eastern Car- East Carolina University, told National Geographic. They are looking to prove rather than seeking to disprove their theory, which is a scientific way. There's a lot of back and forth in this article from people way smarter than me, and I'm not going to repeat it all. It's a science. It's scientists telling other scientists they're wrong but i too am scientist and believe they were zapped up by aliens so sam what do you think (laughs) well of all of the things that i've heard um i kind of tend to believe that that maybe they um they did just kind of join up with the native americans because they had no choice I feel like they were out of supplies. This guy was gone. That was the best they had. And since he didn't find a pile of bones or any kind of remains, I feel like they had to have gone somewhere to find food. And obviously they were not prepared to be able to handle the landscape themselves. So they must have made peace with them, I think. And just assimilated into their tribes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I That's think that too. That. It's either that or it's aliens. That's the only thing. Oh, I think. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. I, There's I, only, I, only two possible options. I too am scientist. I <laughs> yeah, I liked, right I liked that. Phrase. I mean, I am I am a data scientist, but very different from an archaeologist. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, I could look at their data and tell them if they're right or wrong. But anyways, so yeah, that is the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Uh, Good job, dude. So if you haven't seen the play in Mantio, oops, I just spoiled it for you. So whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a new story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hope Spoiler you alert. <laughs> Samantha, tell me about yours. Let's go. Kick it All off. Right. All right. So okay. I am going to talk about Cottonport, Alabama. Most... Uh, I'm, I can't say how many people in Alabama would know about this city. Um, I certainly did not until I read the book Alabama Lore by Will Elric. Um, I very much recommend the book. It is amazing. It talks about just a bunch of different random um, pieces of lore for Alabama. And actually, I'll be recording another episode at some point and I'll use the book for that one as well. I have a um, several different websites. Um, we are Huntsville.com, DigitalAlabama.com, uh, eNewsCourier.com, AL.com, LimestoneCounty-AL.gov, HuntsvilleHistoryCollection.org. Um, that's probably, I mean, it's a it's a lot of websites, but at the same time, I'm just going to go ahead and preface this: there was not a lot of information. For this and you'll figure it out by the time I'm at the end of the story but like we said it's a ghost town so in this case the town itself is a ghost because it's 
just doesn't exist. And like I said, I could barely find anything about it. Most of the information is from 1800s, early 1800s of that. Um, so we'll start with its location. It is located along the Tennessee River, or it was located along the Tennessee River, and it arose as a town in 1818, but it was not, quote unquote, officially considered a town until 1829. And it's they, considered. Was it what? considered a town once they got a post office? No. <laughs> I think that's the requirement now. <laughs> Maybe now, but it wasn't then. I don't know what it was back then. Actually, it's not far away from... Oh, God, I didn't put... Oh, Mooresville. It's not far away from Mooresville, which I'm going to get to in just a second. And I think, if I remember correctly from what I had read, that town actually has the oldest post office in the state of Alabama. That is impressive. kind of cool. Um, but... I could confirm those years because I actually found on one of the websites, I don't know if it's linked in there or not, where it was like the legal document that they had signed way back then to officially name it a town, which is pretty cool. It's actually considered one of Alabama's earliest ghost towns. Cottonport was located approximately one mile south of Morrisville at the junction of the Piney, Limestone, and Beaver Dam Creeks and was considered a prime boat landing. When the water was high, flatboats loaded down with bales of cotton could leave Cottonport, now you know where they got their name, cross over the rocky shoals and float to New Orleans. They're so original. Right. <laughs> we all are, yeah. George um, Glass. <laughs> <laughs> how, did that, how did that pop in my head so fast? <laughs> The town once had a town square, lovely homes, brick front stores, warehouses, and even a racetrack, according to DigitalAlabama.com. Wait, a racetrack? Yeah. For what? Entertainment. No, no you said 1818, right? Yeah. Do they have horses? Are they yeah. raising horses? Yeah. Okay. Why not? Okay. They didn't have TVs. What else are you going to do? They didn't have cars then. No, they weren't racing cars. They were racing horses. When I think of racetrack, I think of... <laughs> That's because <laughs> you're in the modern world. This is, this is 200 years ago. This is like, this doesn't compute. I was that little, I was that lady on that meme. <laughs> Doing all the equations. Her. Yeah. It's possible some of the wealthiest settlers could have lived in Cottonport due to its proximity to Huntsville, which was the state capital at the time, as well as how close it was to the river cotton would be kept in storage during the dry season until the water rose then transported in the rainy rainy season and i sat there and i thought about that when i read that i feel like that had to have ruined some of the cotton because the cotton would have gotten wet at some point wouldn't it have just washed it yeah but if it's in bales like if the middle part gets wet would it not like mold and mess up maybe maybe not but that's that's all i could think of but I mean, it also it, makes sense because they would have to transport it in the rainy season because in the dry season you couldn't transport anything by the river because it was too shallow fair by the 1850s no trace remained of the once bustling town why no one really knows for sure so let's talk about theories one theory is the town simply disappeared after many issues caused by the same thing that was such a blessing in the town the waterways. They brought in most of the business, but this also meant they brought in people from out of town, some of which brought illnesses and diseases. The water also had many areas that were just standing still, and anyone who's from the South knows what standing water means. Oh. Mosquitoes. Yeah? A lot of them. Unfortunately, this means that mosquitoes had plenty of breeding ground along the banks. This led to many outbreaks of mosquito-borne illnesses, including malaria and yellow fever, to towns along the banks of the Tennessee River. But for some reason, cotton ports seemed to get the brunt of the outbreak of malaria. From what we can see, it seems like this was the primary cause of the town being completely abandoned. I can imagine many died and the rest probably ran. Yeah, everybody's sick and dying. I'm going to leave. <laughs> I would like to, to not do this. I would like to not die also. 
<clears throat> but you know, if they left and went more inland, it would make sense that we wouldn't have really any evidence as to what happened because everybody just left. Another theory has to do with the railroad being established. It's thought that the business was taken from Cottonport when the railroad was established, and due to the loss of that business, the town quickly diminished as cotton being shipped from there at all. So it just left. There's no reason to stay. This makes sense as the town was established in large part due to its location so close to the river and the ease of transport by the flatboats. The most interesting thing about this town is not that it was abandoned, but that the buildings have even disappeared. While While historians and locals have researched and attempted to find more information about the town, little can be discovered about what happened to the buildings or where the people from the town ended up after they left. So there's no record. They can't find any records of people just, you know, going to a different town and registering for a census or anything like that. There's nothing. And normally there's something. Well, I mean, it, they could have gone to the wild, wild west. Yeah, maybe. Point. But so you're telling me, do they know the location of the town? Of what was once Ish. the town? I'll kind of get to that. But yeah. Can we go of. look for it? Uh, we'll get we'll get there (laughs) not really uh it's almost like the town was alive and well one day and then the next it just ceased to exist it wasn't until 120 years later that evidence could be found that the town ever even existed some people believe that whatever was left of the town was covered with water in the 1930s when the wheeler reservoir was created by tva which is the tennessee valley authority so that's why i say i really can't because where it's believed that it was is basically underwater. But uh, we don't have any records to show exactly where it would be. So I don't know what it is about like a town being underwater that freaks me out so much. <laughs> well, you know, Smith Smith Lake, that's not far away from where I live. That was another one that was flooded. So there's trees underwater still. and uh, I hate it. Uh, <laughs> it's really creepy. I don't really want to swim in there because of have- it. I have like three on the docket for our uh, ghost town um, episodes where it's pretty much that's what happened to them. <laughs> They're just underwater. So probably underwater. Yeah, fair enough. So now we get to a little bit more local uh, information. When I-65, and that's interna- Interstate 65 for those of you that don't know, was being built through Limestone County in 1968, a grader uncovered 12 bodies near the T- Tennessee River. The reason these bodies were not in coffins, that's right, I didn't misspeak, they uncovered bodies, not coffins, was that the coffins had deteriorated long ago by that point. The workers were obviously confused and concerned, and there were no markers anywhere, so they had no idea what they had found. And if there were any more, or how many more there may be, or what they might find. (laughs) Needless to say, the construction was halted to give investigators time and space to find out what had been found and what needed to be done. But at that point, they don't call in the police, right? They call in, like, archaeologists. or It was technically underwater, I think, at that point, but... Uh, they, it didn't say anything about bringing in archaeologists. It did say they brought in the police and That's investigators. So it just said investigators. So maybe that was scientists and in, included in that. I don't know. Okay. Cause I think it's, uh, there's like specific parameters for maybe, maybe that's just in, I'm thinking of something else, a different country. Anyway, go on. By the time they were finished investigating, they had found 183 more bodies. At this point, they assumed they had uncovered a cemetery, but they had no proof what the cemetery was or why it was located there. Or a very um, secure serial killer and where he's going to bury his <laughs> Maybe. The historians decided this must be the cemetery of the long-vanished city of Cottonport, mentioned in historian Faye Axford's book, The Lore and Lore of Limestone, Limestone County as Tucker Graveyard of Cottonport. So this was the only time this graveyard was ever mentioned was in her book as Tucker Graveyard. While the Alabama Department of Transportation had ad- advertisements made to it 
in an attempt to try to identify any of the bodies or have anybody claim them, no one ever came forward. So no, there was no idea who any of these people were. Well, can't they like carbon date the bodies? Like, can't they like? I mean, well, this was back in 1968. Yeah, 1968. So maybe not. I don't. A little know limited that at that point. <laughs> Whatever. Science is new. Yeah. <laughs> Not all so around. <laughs> like new, newer science is new. I am smart. <laughs> it's a good I, thing you went first. I am scientist. <laughs> Since I-65 just couldn't just simply be moved around the cemetery, the decision was made to reach out to local cemeteries to see if any of them could take the bodies and give them a new place of rest. This is how we solve things in the South. Um, who okay. who wants to bid for this job of taking these bodies off our hands so we can keep going? I, I so mean, anyway. Can't they just like, I don't know, donate them or something? I don't know. Donate the bodies? <laughs> yeah, cremate them. I don't know. Like, why are you reburying them somewhere else taking up more real estate when... Maybe I'm just being insensitive. It just seems like because there's um, a lot of laws and regulations around what they can do with bodies, especially if they've just found them and nobody claims them. Ugh, it just seems like a waste. Listen, when I die, Samantha, I need you to cremate my body and then make a hot chocolate out of my ashes and drink Ugh, it. No thanks. Yeah, that's I'm putting I'll, that I'll in my will. I'll, I'll make jewelry. That's it. I need you to make a spoon out of my ashes that you will use every day to stir your coffee. Is that good enough? Sure. Okay. Located about 50 miles away from the gravesite, Hayden Cemetery in New Hope, Alabama accepted the call and 194 bodies were interred. They won the bid for a whopping reported $47,000. So that's what they got from the Department of Transportation. Oh, that's why they would want to do it. Yeah, they're getting paid and because, you know, they they have to get the interstate built. So they're like, you guys bid and whoever does the best job gets gets the bodies. Here you go. Well, I could have bid on that. I can I can bury some bodies, especially if they're just bones. I just chuck them in my trunk. I don't think I think you had to do it a certain way. <laughs> I don't think you could just do that. Well, otherwise it, they would have had more bids probably. If you visit Hayden Cemetery today, you can find a sign, which is actually incorrect. It's the way that they did it was incorrect, and it states that the bodies are from Collier Cemetery. Um, but the sign directs you to see and visit the quote unquote 194 unknown graves, and a small granite footstone with each person's remains is inscribed with only a number to identify them since they don't know who they are. I also wanted to mention, because it was really weird and I saw it more than once, that weirdly enough, the graves are not in order, but instead are placed randomly, which makes my anxiety go absolutely bonkers. And I think my eye would be twitching if I ever visited. My favorite thing to do when I come to your house is to switch your silverware around and in the, in the drawer. My silverware? Yeah. Oh, I never noticed. Oh, I guess Paul fixes it then. Oh, he must. <laughs> That makes it so much better. <laughs> well, now you're busted. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> been like He's probably like, oh, she was trying to be helpful and put the silverware up from the washing or dishwasher. I'll just fix it. <laughs> I did it on purpose. <laughs> Damn it, Paul. Well, now he knows. And I missed it. <laughs> so <sighs> everyone wins. Anyway. So did you do the math? No. If so, you may have noticed that one of the bodies that was exhumed was not interred into Hayden Cemetery. By the way, congrats if you noticed. So what happened to that body? By the way, this part is has now become known as the story of the man in the cast iron casket. All of the bodies found had been reduced to skeletons, so the boxes that they had been in and the clothes that they had been wearing were long since gone, all except one. When the workers were digging up all the bodies, they uncovered something really cool, honestly. A cast iron casket. Apparently a Springfield Model 92, to be exact. Because I know at least one of you 
listening or Montana would want to know. And you can actually look up the model. It is kind of cool. So cast iron caskets, which I have never heard of, were popular from the mid 1800s through the Civil War, but they were obviously extremely expensive. As you can imagine, only those people who were quite wealthy could afford or even want to afford one. You can actually see some today in museums, and sometimes you can even find them on eBay. I actually found one for the low price of $40,000 when I was researching for this. I mean, that's reasonable with today's prices. Yeah, I mean, well, it's cast iron, and if it's a casket, that's a lot of cast iron. That actually is pretty reasonable. These coffins were made with a glass window to allow a, a person to be able to view the body. Once the workers cleaned the glass, they were able to identify the remains of a skeleton with a long white beard, clothes, and a diamond lapel. Of course, my first question was, how do they know it was diamond? I'm assuming that they're assuming it because he's in this casket and he had to be rich. But who knows? I mean, it could have been crystal. It could have been anything because they couldn't get it open. What do you mean they couldn't get it open? It's sealed. Can they not unseal it? I guess not. Well, maybe they could have, but the funny thing about it is it just disappeared. It was put onto a transport truck overnight to be buried the next day, but when they checked on the truck the next morning, the casket was just gone. No. No. <laughs> no. No. There no. Are, no. That doesn't there happen. Are, <laughs> there are many tales about what happened to the casket with varying motives. Many believe the casket was stolen for the diamond. Again, we don't even know if it was a diamond and also... I don't know that the cast iron would have been as valuable back then, but I mean, if it's on a lapel, it couldn't have been that big either. So would it really be worth it? I don't know. I guess it depends on who you ask. Or it never existed. There are a lot of reports from people that from like the official report reports that it existed. Hmm. So per wearehuntsville.com, the most plausible is that the morning of the burial, cemetery owners received word from a state agency that officials wanted to study the casket and the remains. A New Hope historian thinks the State Department of Forensics made the request, but no state agency has ever confirmed receiving the casket or the remains. Since the cast iron casket was gone, or sorry, was lost, rumors have swirled concerning its whereabouts, with some people postulating that an X-Files type of FBI group nabbed it for examination. No. <laughs> Let's be real. Aliens. It was aliens. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I, I was gonna say it was the mob. Maybe. What if it was a mob boss? And all of those were his henchmen. Or more That's than likely <laughs> more than likely uh, it was might have been a slave owner, and all of those bodies were slaves. Well, that, that's that's actually this time possible. That. Or it could have just been a mass grave because of the malaria and yellow fever. That's the other thing. Oh, that's that's what I thought of. And the rich guy was like the cotton. He owner. there's no telling how long he was there. He could have been there a hundred years before the rest of them, or he could have been buried after. There's no way of knowing. There is a way of knowing. The model of his coffin. When was it first built? Uh Oh, yeah. I guess you could do that. Well, I mean, it was a 92 model, so it would have been around 92. But that's later than... I, well, I don't know what 92 it is. If it's 1492 or if it's... Um, or, I mean, uh, sev- if it would be 1792 or if it would be 1892. That would... But the weird thing is, if it was... If it was 1792, then he'd been holding on to it for a while, which I guess is possible. If it was 1892, he died way after this city was supposed to be extinct or gone or abandoned or whatever. So either way, it's kind of weird. Interesting. Hmm. So this is why this is a big story and a mystery. Cottonport did receive recognition from a historical society in 2003 with a historical marker placed near the location where the town was once so successful in hustling. It's located directly outside the entrance of the town of Morseville. And I'll post a picture of the marker on our social media when we release this. I did find an interesting article in HuntsvilleHistoryCollection.org about Huntsville's first entrepreneur, the Salt King of Abingdon, Virginia. 
So it was a great hot. (laughs) You would say that. Salt was a great commodity in the American frontier. James White of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, was quite the tycoon and began producing salt not far from the Halston River in Virginia. This provided easy access to the river for transportation of his goods. As one of the biggest cities in Alabama and with easy access from the river, White opened one of his first of many mercantile retail stores in Huntsville near the courthouse. Huntsville actually became a second home to White. The success he attained in the Tennessee Valley and Huntsville made him one of the wealthiest men in America around 1810. In 1815, White purchased the Cottonport Plantation near the town of the same name and lived there. Again, uh, this is this was his second home, so he must have traveled between Alabama and Virginia, but it wasn't really clear how much time he spent here in Alabama. The plantation stayed in the family until his son Milton sold it to a Luke Matthews. Luke Matthews then left it to his daughter Lucy, who later married David Irvin White, grandson of James. So it left the family to go to Luke Matthews, who then had a daughter, who then married somebody from the original family, who then now is back into their family. Something about that seems very... um, uh dating your cousin <laughs> well they're not married well, i mean they're not related i know it's just weird it just seems really odd maybe that was intentional maybe david white courted lucy in order to get the plantation back in the family maybe i mean i wouldn't put it past it a man. lucy and david's son gilbert uh yeah lucy and david's son gilbert took over the plantation for a time until he purchased the bibb family plantation if you remember the Bibb family was from the uh, the cemetery episode that we did from Huntsville. Okay. Um, and so he purchased their fam- family plantation somewhere around 1940. And then this plantation was also, it was a plantation. So obviously more than likely they had slaves and it was a cotton plantation. So it was very large. Which it's not in Cottonport. I'll, I'll specify that again. It's right close to Cottonport, which is why it was named that. So as a footnote or side note, side story, however you want to look at it, Cottonport was not the only limestone county town to vanish. And the reason why I'm including this is because there's this is all that I could find and it is a paragraph long. Bridgewater was another town located along the Elk River in Alabama, about 15 miles south of Elkton, Tennessee and 10 miles above Fort Hampton at Sims Landing. While what information can be found of the town shows it to that it was flourishing and a busy town during the early years, later the town simply vanished without any record of why or when. There's no account of what happened to the buildings or why so few history books even mention the town. I actually could only find one mention in all of the different ways I tried to search for it. Looking through Google, I found one website that mentions the city uh, or the town and it's one sentence long. So, uh, and I'll include that link in the show notes just cause it's interesting, but yeah. And I don't think it was very far away from Cottonport either. So that is the story of Cottonport. That's the mm-hmm. mystery of Cottonport. Well, I think it's the mystery of the disappearing casket. <laughs> well, that's a big piece of it. It's pretty weird. And there's no record whatsoever of it after that, but there are records of them finding it so who knows all right i have i've revised my like death wish what i need do you, you want to a cast iron casket no no no. <laughs> I, I don't want one of those what i need you to do is uh weekend and birdies my body oh uh, no for an entire weekend and then have me cremated but don't tell anyone you had me cremated and tell them that my body went missing and then I don't, turn, I don't think I can get away with that. Then turn me into a spoon to stir your coffee every day. Where do you? Okay. I'll just agree to it. It's not like you're going to know once you're gone. Oh, I'll know. <laughs> you're going to haunt me either way. So it difference doesn't make. There we go. It's going to happen. Well, good, good job. Me. Good job. Yeah. You. Um, Thank you. Thank we, you. we always do a good job on this podcast That's and right. all of you listeners should know that um, 
especially if you're still around after the three-parter. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> glad you, if you're still around after the three-parter, I'm glad you <laughs> stuck it out. Um, I almost didn't. Uh, <laughs> Samantha, where can our favorite listeners find us on Instagram? At Reaper Tales Podcast. Uh, you can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast on Facebook. You can email us at reapergals at reapertales.com. Be sure to send us uh, your show suggestions and any compliments you want to give us about the show to our email. That's at reapergals at reapertales.com. Um, if you have any criticism, uh, we actually have a rule written into our inbox that automatically deletes those. So get out. Uh be sure to like, rate, review, subscribe to all of the listening platforms that you listen on. Um, and be sure to follow. I'm not sure if I just said that, but um, be sure to follow because in October we're having surprise episodes all throughout the month of October. So along with our weekly um, release on Friday, you will be getting surprise episodes throughout the month. So if you follow and subscribe to our show on whatever listening platform that you're on, you'll just get notified that, hey, Reaper Tales has released a new episode. And so you don't have to wait until Friday to figure out that there's three sitting in your queue. And you're welcome because we love spooky season and that's why we're doing it. Exactly. So until next time. The reaper will come for us all.